Well, I get to introduce our speaker for this morning, Jill Thompson. Um, many of you may remember Jill if you've been here for a while. She's been a longtime friend of Fairview Avenue. Uh, you may remember her husband Wally and the boys, right? <laughs> um, she is a licensed pastor with the BIC, and she's currently a member of the pastoral care and counseling team at Waynesboro Hospital. Uh, she has many years of ministry experience and has served on the evangelism and ministry councils. She is a member of Hollowell BIC Church, where she serves as adult Sunday school teacher. She is the creator of gym class, not the one from high school. That's God's Young Moms class. Uh, and she is also deeply committed to the Stevens ministry. So without further ado, here's Jill. Hi guys, I'm home. <laughs> I've been around <laughs> and I'm home. <laughs> Um, this is so great. Uh, Wally and I were looking forward to get, getting to come here this morning, and uh, uh, one of the things we said to her on the way, uh, I, thought, I wonder if Clyde Yeager is still there. Yes, he is, and Jay, Jay's dad, Mr. Standridge, and, and um, so a lot of you folks are still here. It's good. It's really good. Um, I, I do have to tell you, um, I, I've had a lot of credentialing and things going on, but um, most of the time, I'm, I'm just a storyteller. I just love telling the story of Jesus. I, I'm a former school librarian, so I do enjoy a good story. And um, this whole ministry journey has been a, a great avenue for me to tell stories about Jesus and, and um, talking to people around. I, I'm kind of older. Wally and I are like retired and like we have AARP and all that. And um, so when I went into ministry, I really didn't intend to actually be a minister of a church or anything. So I do a lot of substitute teach, preaching, substitute preaching um, for pastors who were on vacation. So when John called and said they were going away, I thought, hot dog, I'm here. So um, anyway, I'd like to start with a story that has been going around. Um, I got it as an email a while ago, and maybe you have heard it, but I just needed to share it. Um, with this pandemic, we've been very germ conscious and about the viruses and all that stuff. And this uh, story is entitled, Can Cold Water Clean Dishes? And um, I've often wondered about that, you know, when you do dishes, whether cold water can clean dishes. But this story is for the germ conscious folks that worry about using clean water to clean, cold water clean. Um, the story goes that John went to visit his 90-year-old grandfather in a very secluded rural area of Saskatchewan. And after spending a great evening chatting the night away, the next morning, John's grandfather prepared breakfast of bacon, eggs, and toast. However, John noticed a film-like substance on his plate and questioned his grandfather asking, are these plates clean? And his grandfather replied, well, they're as clean as cold water to get them, so you just go ahead and finish your meal, Sonny. So for lunch, the old man made hamburgers. And again, John was concerned about the plates, as it appeared to have tiny specks around the edge that looked like dried egg. And he asked again, are you sure these plates are clean? Without looking up, the old man said, I told you before, Sonny, those dishes are as clean as cold water to get them, so don't you fret. I don't want to hear another word about it. 
Later that afternoon, John was on his way to a nearby town, and as he was leaving, his grandfather's dog started to growl and wouldn't let him pass. John yelled and said, Grandfather, your dog won't let me get to my car. Without diverting his attention from the football game he was watching, the old man shouted, Cold water, go lay down now, you hear? Ew. <laughs> I wish I had a picture of a dog with the drool wrapped around his head a couple times, but anyway, this story is a great example of being sure to ask the essential question uh, when it comes to the dishes you're eating from. It's not a question of whether cold water can clean dishes. It, who exactly is cold water, you know? Uh, the answer to the question certainly would have made a difference in the story. But this morning, we're gonna talk a little bit more about asking the essential question, who are you? But before we go any further, will you pray with me? Lord God, our Father, again, we have come to a time of worship. Without your word, we have nothing to say. Without your own self, we have nothing to give. Without your power, we cannot proceed. Fill us with your Holy Spirit, that the word may become alive through us, that your presence may be evident and real, and that each one who participates in worship today may be changed into your image by the power of the Holy Spirit. And it is in your name we pray, amen. Well, the first essential question, who are you? has been an important one in our family for the past 35 years. Those of you who know Wally and I know that we have five sons, um, and the, the oldest two, Matt and Jordan, were six and four when I was praying for, um, we wanted three children in the family, and I was hoping for a girl, and we got triplet boys. And so God answered prayer, three children, there you go, three at a time. So we have triplets. Matt, Jordy, Peter, Dennis, Andy. And those of you who know our family, the who are you question is pretty important. Um, with triplets, they look, they're identical. Uh, the, the probability of having identical triplets is huge. So we don't know where they came from, but God had a good idea. Um, they're as unique and different as the people in the world around us though. They may look alike, but they're very different. Um, as the tri triplets grew from babies to toddlers, we began to recognize D Peter, Dennis, and Andy as having distinctive personalities and qualities. And those who knew them could tell them apart just by interacting with them. Uh, Charlie's son, Jay, early on could tell the difference between these three guys because they, they were friends and he knew them. But um, not all the teachers could, you know, at school. Uh, the family could identify which was Peter, which was Dennis, or which was Andy in three ways. One was knowing their personalities and their character. Uh, one, the second one was spending time with them. And the third way was having a personal relationship with them, like, you know, being their mother or father or, you know, a friend. <clears throat> Dennis, for example, was the first to understand the mechanics of how things were built, how they worked. Uh, with a twist of the doorknob, he was the first one who got that mechanic. And uh, any time I'd have a door shut so they couldn't get into somewhere, Dennis would just open that door and they'd all, <laughs> they'd all go in. Um, 
and he knew the mechanics of his crib, how that, how that worked out. He figured out how to get out a slat, how to climb over there and get out of the crib. So he knew all that stuff before the other guys. He was just that way. And it's kind of funny how people start out with these qualities and gifts. Um, he's, Dennis now is, has been working as a, a wood a worker at the master's wood shop over in Hagerstown, and he builds things. And so we think, okay, that's Dennis. Andy, who was always a quick learner, um, he just seemed to soak up information. And I'd, we'd go up there, and the guys would be, you know, a put in bed, but, you know, kids never stay. And you could hear in the dark Andy saying in the room that they all three were in, okay, boys, what rhymes with red? And then you'd hear silence, and then Pete would say, bed. And Andy would say, good boy. Okay, what rhymes with cat? And he would go on these little instructions until they all fell asleep. What, so um, Andy eventually went to Millersville and is, um, has a degree in elementary education. So he's a teacher. Um, Pete, who is the kindest of all and the most sentimental, he was, oh, he was always crying. He was a sweet guy, but um, he wanted the right thing. He always wanted to do the right thing. And he, he was very methodical about, okay, I'm going to get up. I'm going to brush my teeth. I'm going to do. He was very, very methodical because he wanted to do the right thing. And he's an accountant now. So he, you know, keeps track of numbers and he, he's very ethical. He's a very good guy. But um, for the rest of the world, the triplets were known by their colors. You know, the, the, the um, teachers and the um, little league coaches and stuff. Peter always wore blue, Dennis always wore green, and Andy always had red. Even now, Wally and I ran into somebody at the parlor house and we had Dennis with us and they kind of looked him up, oh, you must be Dennis, because he remembers he wears green and he kind of still does at 35. So anyway, aside from the context of identifying triplets, um, you have to know who you're talking to and who exactly are you. Um, the conversion of Paul, I was, I was reading about this, center around, centers around this same question, who are you? If you turn in your Bibles to Acts 9, um, we'll be reading Acts 9, uh, 1 to 5. I hope you have your Bibles, your swords with you. Um, but this is the story of Paul's conversion. Uh, in Acts 9. Meanwhile, Saul was breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he would take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. And as he nears Damascus, as his journey, uh, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Saul asked, Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Who are you, Lord? This is the central question. Lying in the dust in Damascus Road, Paul articulated the question that every one of us eventually must answer personally, who are you, Lord? This seems like an odd question given Paul's background. This is what we know about Paul. Paul's parents were devout Jews who circumcised their son according to the law on the eighth day. 
We know that Paul was from the tribe of Benjamin and was named after the first king of Israel, Saul. And Saul was the most celebrated member of the tribe of Benjamin and a great hero of the nation who died in the battle against the Philistines. If you look back in the Old Testament, it's quite a story. Paul also identifies himself as a Pharisee, one separated from society to study, teach, strictly observe the tradition and the written law. Paul was trained in Jerusalem under the great first century leader Gamaliel. He was well-versed in both the Hebrew scriptures and the Greek Septuagint. He was also a student of Greco-Roman philosophy and a master debater, skilled in both Greco-Roman rhetoric and the traditional Jewish Midrash, an ancient commentary on the part of the Hebrew scriptures. This was a guy who knew his stuff. <laughs> he had knowledge, he had skills, he had the right credentials and connections. He knew about God all right. Now here comes Jesus, identified as the Messiah. And because Jesus had been crucified, that meant he was a curse, not salvation, at least according to Paul and the Jewish tradition. Paul was certain that the notion of Jesus as Messiah was ridiculous. Paul's motivation was to correct this false teaching within Judaism. That's why he was so passionate about being a reformer, working for the high priest with the goal of dealing sharply with the followers of a condemned rabbi that was crucified. In the context of Paul's experience with God's law and Jewish tradition, his persecution of the way was the center of his life. Here was a man going about the business of God. Why would he even ask in verse 5, who are you, Lord? He would certainly know. Please understand what we know about Jesus is highly relevant and more importantly, distinctly personal. Jesus claimed to be the only way for individuals to be redeemed when he said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus did not preach a feel-good message, but to help us recognize the reality of human sin and the radical measures God takes to redeem us from that sin. Jesus calls us to repent and follow him. And the early church summarized their belief by simply saying, yeah, Jesus is Lord. But there is a difference in knowing about Jesus and actually knowing who Jesus is. It's kind of like knowing about the Thompson triplets and thinking you know who they are by the colors they're wearing, but not knowing them personally as individuals. So what happens if Dennis wears blue? Likewise, I wonder if it's possible to be active in the church body and get by with knowing about Jesus without ever asking or answering the essential question, who exactly are you, Lord? There was a children's Sunday school teacher asked her class, What's green and hops and goes ribbit, ribbit? One boy hesitantly raises his hand and he says, sounds a lot like a frog, but I'm gonna go with Jesus. <laughs> Sometimes we can be so sure that Jesus is the logical Christian answer that we never go deeper to ask the question, who are you, Lord? Back to Paul. It was on the road to Damascus that God suddenly became real to Paul when God became more than just the letter of the law. Maybe it happened when the warmth of the light from heaven suddenly flashed around him. 
Maybe it was after he fell to the ground feeling the rubble of the road on his cheek or the smell of dirt as he laid on the ground. Perhaps it was hearing the sound of the very voice of Jesus asking, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It was in God's timing and for his purposes that God used the light of heaven and a fall to the ground and the actual voice of Jesus to become real to Paul. In God's timing and for his purposes, even today, God still uses the illumination of the Holy Spirit to bring us to the first essential question, who are you, Lord, in this circumstance? I wonder if we ever find ourselves traveling purposely along a path like Paul when we are suddenly blindsided and we find ourselves so low that the only thing that catches our attention is the voice of God. And like Paul, we respond, who are you, Lord? I thought I knew who you were, but now really, who are you? Maybe God will use a fall to the depths of despair or sin, a time when we can't get much lower in the dirt, either by our own poor choices or the broken people that God allows in our lives. It is Jesus who is there watching and waiting until we ask, who are you that you know my pain? Who are you that you know my fear, my loneliness? Who are you, Lord, that I might have hope? If we listen, we hear him whisper to us, do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you, I will help you, I will uphold you with my righteous hand. Isaiah says that. Don't ever be afraid to ask God who he is in the context of your own life. He will answer. For it's the Holy Spirit who prepares us for faith in Jesus Christ. He awakens us to our need, enables us to acknowledge our guilt, and calls us to respond to God in faith and obedience. Do not fear. You know, there is a way to discover the answer to this question before it's even asked of us, just like cheating on a test. We want to know the answer. When identifying which triple is which, we had to discover their character and personality, spend time with them, and have a personal relationship with them. It's the same with God. It is by reading our Bibles that we really get to know God's character, distinctives, and gain a knowledge of him. And as we practice his presence daily and interact with him in prayer, our hearts begin to turn towards him in trust. And it is through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ that when we honestly ask in trying times who he is, we can believe his answer to us, I am Jesus Christ the Lord. Once God answers our question about who he is and reveals his truth and love for us, he redirects another question back at us. This is the way psychologists work. You ask them a question, they ask you a question back. They never tell you the answer. It's the same question that Jesus asked Simon Peter in Matthew 16. Okay, you spent some time with me. You've seen how I operate now. Who do you say I am? In other words, do you confess with your own mouth that Lord Jesus and believe in your heart of hearts who he is? This is getting a little personal now. Our answer, individual answers, are of internal, eternal importance. I cannot stress the idea of personal accountability here. I mean, um, okay, here's a perfect example. I use the triplets an awful lot. I've learned a lot about God just having triplets. but. Um, a lot of times they would answer questions collectively, we. 
They never said I, they always said we. We don't like peas. We want to watch Power Rangers. You ask any, any one of them and they would answer with, we prefer this, we prefer that. I didn't realize it until Pete got to sixth grade. We were, they were over at Fairview Elementary and I was at a parent-teacher conference, sixth grade this is, and the teacher said to me, do you realize Peter doesn't know the, the months of the year in order? January, February, March. I said, well, he's in sixth grade. How could he not? They did the calendar in kindergarten all the way through. No, he doesn't know him. You go home and ask him if he can say the months of the year in order. So I went home. Hey, Pete, what comes after January? Um, is it April? Uh, no, it's uh, apparently when they were learning the months of the year, they were together and somebody say, do you know the months of the year? And they all look at each other. Yep, we do. <laughs> Somebody knew it. it. Wasn't Peter? Maybe Dennis did, or Andy. But Peter wasn't the one that had that information. So personally, he didn't know him. But if he was standing with his brothers, yeah, we know him. We know him. So it's kind of like, what about individual accountability here? <laughs> this is so attending church, for example and participating in good activities, mission trips, outreach activities. I love all the stuff that's happening. And it's all good because we demonstrate a collective response to who we think Jesus is. This church represents who Jesus is. But Romans 14, 12 says that each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. So the second question remains, who do you personally think Jesus is? I think perhaps this is the hardest question of all because our environment, our culture around us, our circumstances, our feelings, all fluctuate day to day, year to year. Things change. But this is what I know about Jesus that never changes. And I say this to you, I proclaim this to you. At his infancy, he was announced as Emmanuel, God with us. We know that. At his baptism, he was acknowledged to be God's son. His ministry was marked by the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. He taught with divine authority and said that anyone who had seen him had seen the Father. God's plan of salvation for sinful man is central to God's eternal purpose and is fully revealed in the person and work of Jesus Christ, chosen by God before creation to be the Savior, truly divine, truly human. Is all of this really who he is? It's easy to say it, easier said than done. Is he still faithful and true when you feel like your prayers are never going beyond the ceiling? When you face health challenges and crisis and you just can't seem to pray in a way that you're seeing any difference? Is he still a redeemer when your relationship with a loved one is broken? when you're facing marriage difficulties or have a prodigal. Um, one of the triplets is a prodigal, or Andy is a prodigal. Um, it's been 12 years in June, he's been gone. Andy married a, a girl that has made it clear he has, has no uncertain terms to um, see his family, co uh, communicate with us. And so he's been gone for 12 years. We kind of sneak and see him. But um, when it first happened and he left and I prayed and nothing's happening in the prayer and I'm thinking, what is going on? Are you still Lord? I thought God was good. 
We said it at the beginning of the year. I thought God was good. I thought I did everything right. I re he was baptized here at Fairview, right in that baptismal. And here's the broken world invaded in my relationship, our relationship, our family's relationship. But um, God is a redeemer. And he redeemed this broken relationship, not to bring Andy back, not the way I expected, but rather he redeemed it for his purposes and his glory, not mine. And I'll tell you how he did it. Um, after you go through a grief process, you know, there is a time to mourn when you lose a loved one in your family and you can't communicate anymore. Um, you start to wonder who God is. You wonder who Jesus is. What is the deal? And so you go to your Bible and you read and you pray and you study and you, and a lot of times in this world, you do research. The librarian and me did research. I looked up all sorts of things on relationships and uh, cognitive dissonance and, and all these things. And I talked to psychologists and said, can you believe this happened? No, I can't believe it happened. <laughs> and they're like, okay. So, and there's lots of information out there about women who are abused by men, but not too much about men being abused by women. And um, so I'm thinking, all oh, this stuff. And as I study, I talk to people who have had similar experiences. Yes, I put together a group of mothers of prodigals, and we used to meet and talk about how this could happen and where is Jesus in all this. And then uh, uh, I would be doing more and more study. And as I did, I found myself being drawn closer and closer to God. And I thought, huh, this is, this is really good stuff. <laughs> you know, I, I'm not going to get over this. I'll never get over this. There'll always be an empty chair at our table. But Jesus will get you through it. He, will be, he never leaves you. He's a redeemer. And he began to redeem this situation to give me a heart and a compassion for people who are broken and hurting. And everybody you meet is fighting a battle you know nothing about. And I've discovered that. I've heard from people. I hear their stories. And um, I came across in my research um, a, a group, a ministry called Stephen Ministry, no S, Stephen Ministry. And I looked it up, and it is a great organization. They train members of a congregation to provide one-on-one -on -one Christian care to people who are hurting or experiencing a difficult time in life such as grief, divorce, job loss, chronic or terminal illness, relocation when older folks have to leave their homes and go live somewhere else. All these transitional and hurtful and scary times in uh, the life of anybody, this is just life. But Stephen ministers are just people like you and me who come alongside somebody who is hurting and just be there with them. Be the skin, be Jesus' skin and walk with them through whatever difficult time there is. I went uh, away a couple years ago for uh, training in Pittsburgh for a week, <laughs> five days, 50 hours of training on how to train people in congregations to be Stephen ministers so that when somebody in your congregation is hurting, when they're going through a difficult time, when they just are by themselves, like I was going through losing Andy. Um, you just come alongside somebody and just be there. You don't fix. 
you can't fix. Only the Holy Spirit can change hearts, but um, it's just something I do. And we trained six demon ministers at Hollowell. I trained them, and they, in turn, are, are meeting needs of hurting people in our congregation. And it's, it's worked out great. Um, if you want to know more about that, this is a commercial message. You want to know about, about Stephen ministry, tell Pastor John and I'll be glad to come and train people. But if, if you develop this heart for caregiving, you get a care receiver and that's how you work. You just, you just care for people who are hurting. Um, Stephen ministers come from all walks of life, but they share a passion for bringing Christ's love and care to people during a time of need. And rather than fix the problem, they just remind the care receivers who Jesus is. Back to the essential question. Um, here's another thing. When these difficult times, times come, is he Emmanuel, God with us, even when you can't see him and hear him? When depression and grief are your closest companions, is he still Lord? Is he Lord, sovereign over your finances, your future, your fears? Is he Savior and King, worthy of worship and obedience, even during a pandemic? You know, we tried to get together during the pandemic and worship, but it was so easy to sit in our bathrobes and downstairs watching the live stream and drink coffee while the, the, the service was on. But here is our Savior, worthy of worship. Last year at Easter time, this was the coolest thing. Um, there's a, a Catholic girl lives two doors down. She kind of shamed me into it, but I thought later it was a good idea. Um, she was saying how she was going to miss mass and all that at Easter time, and that was really important to her. And I began to look around our neighborhood. I began to look outside the church at our neighborhood and think, oh my goodness, you know what? I bet you there's some Christians out here that are ready to worship the Lord. And we're all stuck in our homes with masks on and scared of each other. And uh, we need to do something. I need to do something. We need to do something, I said to my Catholic friend. And she said, okay. So we put out flyers. <laughs> this is a scary part because I don't know the, the spiritual journey of everybody in my neighborhood. And, and we put out fly, flyers and said, on Easter sign, Sunday morning, we're going to have worship in your driveways. Nine o'clock, come out in your driveways and we're going to worship the Lord together. I'm thinking, oh boy, okay, here we go. And so I put together a playlist of five great Easter songs, ended up with the Hallelujah Chorus, and uh, Grant, my grandson, has one of these speakers that looks like a barbell, you know, they're real powerful and stuff. And so um, we handed out the flyers, didn't know what we were going to do, and I said, well, I don't know if I want, I'm, I mean, I'm getting out there with our faith. I'm, I'm actually going to say I believe in Jesus. <laughs> so anyway, we pointed time, here come Grant and the, his brothers, and we hang the speakers up in the trees in our front yard, and uh, uh, I pressed play, and it blasted the, the first, uh, Jesus Christ is risen today, you know, and our neighborhood faces the mountains, and you could almost hear it reverberate through the, and, and it's all quiet. I'm thinking, oh, they're going to call the cops and tell me I'm disturbing the peace. I just know it. <laughs> and, and so we were just all there. And all of a sudden, by the second song, I could see around the neighborhood, people were coming out of their doors and setting up lawn chairs in their driveways. And some of the people had even printed out the words because I told them what five songs we were going to. And I didn't know if Lutherans or Catholics or sing all the great choruses that we know. But 
I put it out there and they looked up the lyrics on the internet and some of them had word sheets and, and they were coming out and by the third song, people were starting to come down the street. I thought they were supposed to stay in their driveways, but they came down the street. And here's this beautiful music on Easter Sunday morning and we're worshiping as a neighborhood People, I don't know where they go to church, but I didn't care because they were worshiping our risen savior. And by the eight, by the last song, the hallelujah chorus, we had a whole group in front of our house, right? And, uh, and, and here came a lady with a wheel, pushing her mother in a wheelchair coming down the street. And, and we were all gathered and the hallelujah chorus was echoing all the way. And people were standing up out of their lawn chairs. You know, that's tradition to stand during the hallelujah chorus. So I knew they were worshiping with me. It was amazing. And then at the very last, amen, um, everybody wished each other a happy Easter and went back in their houses. But it was a time of worship. It was huge. And now when I walk the dog, they, I take prayer requests. They know I'm a believer. But um, <laughs> it was great. And one of the, I heard from an Episcopalian neighbor down at the end of the cul-de-sac. She said, Jill, we couldn't see you, but we could hear the hallelujah chorus. And when the, they came to the hallelujah, she said, the birds started singing in the trees. So even the birds were worshiping. It was great. So I'm hearing these stories. I'm hearing these stories. And I get to hear more stories from people who know, I know who Jesus is. I say he is Lord. It's my hope and prayer for you, Fairview, that you continue to live as the body of Christ, even when the church walls are not around you. And that rather than putting your faith and hope in a political party, a vaccine, or a movement that endorses one color of life over another, or your hope and your response to every problem, every disappointment, every why question in life will be, in this circumstances, Jesus, I believe you are who you say you are. I don't know what challenges you may be facing in your life today, but consider crucifixion, the most awful, the most gruesome experience of all circumstances in the world. There were three crosses that the Bible tells us about in Luke 23. Crowds had gathered to watch Jesus' death. Jesus was nailed to the cross between two other men, both criminals. One of the criminals hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. He thought Jesus would reveal his saving power in a certain way in an expected way. But the other criminal acknowledged Jesus as Lord even in the worst of circumstances when evidence of Jesus' Lordship was nowhere to be seen. He said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. One cross posed the question, who do you say I am? Two crosses offered the only answers to choose from. I doubt who you are, you're not fulfilling my expectations. I believe who you are you are fulfilling God's expectations. I encourage you this morning, my brothers and sisters, to choose well, settle the question, look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated right now at the right hand of the throne of God. A poem, I love, that's literature section in the library. A lion met a tiger as he drank beside a pool. Said the tiger to the lion, why are you roaring like a fool? That's not foolish, said the lion with a twinkle in his eye. They call me king of all the beasts because I advertise. A rabbit overheard them. He tore home like a streak. He thought he'd try that lion's plan, but his roar was just a squeak. A fox came to investigate, had luncheon in the woods. So if you're going to advertise, my friends, make sure you've got the goods. In this world, 
If you're going to advertise that you know who Jesus is, just make sure you've got the goods. Let's pray. We thank you, you merciful Father, that you have brought us to know you and your Son by your Spirit and through your Word. Grant that we who have answered that essential question and received Christ Jesus as Lord live out lives of consequence. Keep us rooted and built up in him. Keep us strengthened in the faith as we were taught. And keep us overflowing with thankfulness for the gift of who you are. In Jesus' name, amen.